This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. What is normal? <laughs> eh, nobody knows, right? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. It's a surprisingly difficult question to answer. Um, what you might consider to be normal today wasn't 25 years ago, 10 years ago, one year ago. So if that's the case, what is the normal Christian life? What's the normal Christian life? Would we say it contains those same kinds of fluctuations? There may be superficial changes. In the 1960s, you were not reading from the NIV translation of the Bible. That didn't come around until the 70s. In the 1950s, Christians weren't worshiping with guitars. Fifteen years ago, the only Bible reading you were doing most prevalently was from the printed page. Today, we've got screens everywhere. So what's the normal Christian life? Even though we experience superficial changes to the way in which we live the Christian life, I would maintain there is an underlying, unchanging structure to the way in which the normal Christian life works itself out. And I don't think most of us are consciously aware of what that is. And we see it in numerous New Testament texts, but the one we're going to consider today is Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. If you've got your Bibles, it'd be good to have those open to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. And I want to read verses 7 through 11. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. The normal Christian life mimics the pattern of Jesus' life. The normal Christian life contains a series of many deaths followed by many resurrections. The normal Christian life is a series of deaths and resurrections. Paul Miller graphically captures this idea with the image on the screen. He calls it, Creatively, the J-curve, the J-curve. And he sees Jesus' J-curve, his death, his descent into death, and his resurrection. 
And what Paul is saying here in Philippians 3, and we find in other places in the New Testament, is that is precisely the shape of the normal Christian life. This is the only truth I want us to think about today. The pattern of the normal Christian life is a J-curve. The pattern of the normal Christian life contains hundreds, maybe thousands, of many deaths, followed by hundreds, maybe thousands, of many resurrections. And in the time we have, I want to flesh out four applications of this truth. First, Jesus' death and resurrection is something we believe and mimic. It's something we believe and it's something we mimic. There's another place in Philippians, Philippians 1.29, where Paul says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. To believe in him and suffer for him. Now, I don't want us to gloss over the first part of that point. Jesus' death and resurrection is indeed something we believe. It's something we must believe if we're going to join him in living the J-curve. It's first something we believe. Now, if I was to take the stage some Sunday morning and announce to you, hey, I've got good news for you all. What you're expecting next is some verbal announcement of some kind which would require you to believe that announcement before it's ever experienced as good news. Now, if my announcement was, we have all been given an all-expenses-paid trip to the Holy Land. Now, even if that statement is true, there are going to be doubting Thomases among us who would be whispering to each other, sounds too good to be true, it can't be. Even though the statement is true, because it's not believed, it's not experienced as good news. Now, it's good news regardless of whether or not we believe it, but it's not experienced as good news if it's not met with faith, trust, belief. So good news is first something we believe. And the real good news that we believe is that Jesus lived the perfect life for us, And he died in our place, the death that our sins rightly deserved. So that by faith, by believing this good news, we can have eternal life with him. Jesus lived the J-curve. That's the good news. He lived the J-curve in our place. That's the good news. It's something we first believe. But notice, both in Philippians 1 and Philippians 3, it's something we enact. The J-curve is something we believe And it's something we live out. That's the shape of the normal Christian life. It's been granted to you, not just to believe, but to suffer. It's been given to you. The word is grace. It's a grace gift to you, not just to believe, but to suffer. And Paul says, I want to know Christ, participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. This is what he's saying. It's a gift for us to suffer for Christ. And by the way, suffering for Christ is not just, I I refuse to recant my faith in the face of martyrdom. Paul's understanding of suffering is much bigger than that. It's living the Christian life in all areas of your life, even down to the fact that it causes you to suffer. And we're going to flesh out some implications of that, applications of that. Now, here's the question. Who talks like this? Paul's saying, I want to know participation in the sufferings of Christ. Who talks like this? No American I know talks like that. 
What's Paul doing? Paul is showing us Jesus lived the J-curve for us so that he can reproduce the J-curve in us. The normal Christian life is the J-curve. The normal Christian life is a repeated series of many deaths and many resurrections. Miller talks about the process of learning this. He writes, my wife Jill was under enormous pressure. Our six kids, ages three through 16, were constantly fighting and whining. No parent knows what that's like. Caring for Kim, our fourth child and special needs child, had depleted our savings. We were living from paycheck to paycheck. Jill did all her gift buying for the kids at thrift stores, putting the best face on it by packing their presents in boxes from brand name stores. Our kids figured out what she was doing and started sniffing their stale smelling presents when they opened the boxes. Then Kim was kicked out of a school because they didn't think she could learn. Every area of our life had become extraordinarily difficult and Jill felt the brunt of it. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to love her. She was hemmed in on every side. And so I wrote this in my prayer journal in January of 1991. Father, how do I love her? How do I give myself up for her? How do I die for her? When I prayed this prayer, I wasn't sure what it looked like to give myself up for her. Over the next few years, God began to show me what that looked like in everyday moments. And here's one glimpse. We'd moved to the edge of Philadelphia's northern suburbs in 1993 to get better schooling for Kim. We had a place that allowed Jill to fulfill her childhood dream of having farm animals. Growing up on the streets of Philly with a concrete backyard, she had longed for some green space. We had four pygmy goats and one big sheep named Ed. In the winter of 1995, our local weather forecasters began predicting the storm of the century. A couple of days before the storm, Jill began worrying about her animals in their little wooden shelters. Since Ed had a six-inch deep coat of wool, I wasn't concerned, but I called a local sheep farmer and asked if the animals would be okay. He said yes, as long as they had shelters. I shared this with Jill, and it seemed to calm her. On Saturday evening, when we already had a foot of snow on the ground... Jill began to get nervous again. We knew the goats were savvy. They would head to their sheds, but Ed Ed wasn't the sharpest tack in the box. I went to bed around 10 p.m. and was drifting off to sleep when I heard Jill's voice say, Paul, would you check the sheep? I'm concerned about Ed. As I lay there, I plotted my response. I'd remind her what the farmer had said. Then I explained the insulating value of snow, not to mention Ed's thick coat. But I knew Jill well enough to realize that none of this would convince her. She'd just go out into the blizzard herself. It would just get me more irritated with her. (coughs) Then I remembered how Paul reenacted the gospel. I thought, this isn't complicated. I can substitute my warmth for her worry. The problem wasn't Ed, but Jill's anxiety. So I crawled out of bed, put on my boots and jacket, and checked Ed. He was fine. So Jill was too. In the morning, we trudged out together into a winter wonderland of snow to check on the animals, but especially Ed. As we called his name, we made a poem. Where is Ed? Is Ed dead? Will he come out of his bed? Finally, one of the lumps on the field began to move, and out popped Ed. 
So just as Jesus substitutes himself for us, we substitute the pieces of our lives for others. I had a mini death so Jill could live. There are hundreds of examples of this in everyday life. Nursing moms are good examples of this. Mimicking the cross and the resurrection, the Jacob who wants to nurse a screaming baby all hours of the night, day after day. Moms experience a, a mini death. Well, baby and sleeping husband experience a mini resurrection. This is mimicking the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, thanks to some technology out there, dads can get involved, right? Pump a little milk, put it in the fridge. Hey, dad, you get up at 3 a.m. Let your wife sleep. You experience a mini death. Your wife and baby experience a mini resurrection. This is the pattern to the normal Christian life. We have an incredible army of volunteers in this church who sacrificially give their time and their energy, even after a tough day of work, a long, tiring day of work. They'll come and they'll serve, giving up the pieces of their lives for the good of others. The normal Christian life takes the shape of a J-curve. The normal Christian life is a series of hundreds of many deaths followed by hundreds of many resurrections. Second, mimicking Jesus' death normalizes suffering. Now, I know God created a paradise, new heavens, new earth, devoid of suffering. There is something about suffering that it's not normal. I understand that. But Paul is saying suffering is a gift. And participating in the sufferings of Christ is something he wants to know. It's as if it's something that goes with the territory of a normal Christian life. Realizing this has created a radical shift in my own thinking about hardship. See, if we neglect the J-curve, suffering will always feel strange. If we neglect the J-curve, suffering will always feel strange. Suffering didn't appear to be strange for Paul. He's not merely enduring it or coping with it, even learning from it. He's celebrating a life that reenacts the cross in the empty tomb. Paul is describing the normal Christian life. See, because we have neglected Paul's emphasis on the J-curve, suffering feels strange. We've lost sight of this vibrant way of doing life. Embracing the J-curve serves as a way to free our inner self from a life waiting for the other shoe to drop. So listen, the next moment suffering comes into your life, rather than fixating on the things that are causing your suffering and responding in anxiety and anger, despondency. Think instead that this suffering is an opportunity to reenact the gospel. It's an opportunity to reenact the gospel. The season of suffering you're in today means you are right now inhabiting the gospel story. In fact, if you're going through that right now, whisper to yourself, say to yourself, I'm inhabiting the gospel story. That's what this is. I'm inhabiting the gospel story. And I promise that's going to bring a a lightheartedness to your suffering. Suffering is an alien to the Christian life. Suffering is a way we participate in the gospel story. Third, Mimicking Jesus' death helps us know Christ in a deeper way. Do you know Christ? We often ask that. 
And when we ask that, it often carries with it the slim connotation of data and information. Paul starts in chapter 3, verse 10. I want to know Christ. I hear that and I say, great. I want to know Christ too. I want to know Jesus. Now then, how shall we go about that? Look at what Paul says. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. Okay, I'm on board with that. Participation in his sufferings. Now, wait a minute, Paul. Becoming like him in his death. Can we talk about this, Paul? I like the first idea. I'm not sure about these next two. Somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Can we skip over the middle part, Paul, and go the first part and the last part? I want to know Christ, but I'm not so sure about Paul's method here. Paul is saying knowing Christ the way he wants to know him requires deaths. Knowing Christ the way he wants to know him requires deaths. The normal Christian life with its hundreds of deaths and resurrections, many deaths, many resurrections, is the best way to know Christ. This is something that's lost, particularly in the developed world, where we've experienced the triumph of the therapeutic, where happiness equals salvation. Self-fulfillment equals salvation. Let me tell you something. Dodging suffering means that we miss out on knowing Christ in a deeper way. When you seek to avoid suffering at all costs, you are missing opportunities to know Jesus in a way you otherwise wouldn't. That mini death is an opportunity we often pass on because nobody likes how it feels. But Paul's saying the only way to know Christ in this deeper way is to live through the J curve. Every Easter, I think about Johnny Erickson Tata. Every Easter, I think about her. She became a quadriplegic after a diving accident when she was just 17 years old. Uh, Most people don't realize that she was a very vibrant, effervescent teenager, one of the most popular kids in school, one of the most athletic kids in school. And after this accident, she was locked motionless in a medical frame for months on end. And she slipped into a deep depression even to the point of begging a good friend of hers to help her commit suicide. Initially, she says she refused to inhabit the gospel story. She refused it. She refused to go through the J-curve. She pushed it away. She wanted to go back to her old life, serving as captain of the lacrosse team and riding her horse tumbleweed in shows. The first two years after the accident were absolutely brutal for her. And at first... She held on to this hope that by sheer willpower, she'd regain use of her her arms and her legs and eventually get married to her boyfriend. But then reality set in. She realized she's not going to get better. She said this, I wretched at the thought of living life without a working body. I hated my paralysis so much I would drive my power wheelchair into walls, repeatedly banging them until they cracked. Early on, I found dark companions who helped me numb my depression with scotch and cola. I wanted to disappear. I wanted to die. In her autobiography, she describes her escape into her imagination. She writes, friends who had come to visit me had saddled horses and gone on a trail ride. I was feeling sorry for myself, comparing my lot to theirs. I closed my eyes and visualized a similar day a couple of years earlier. In my daydreams, I was again with Jason, riding horseback together toward the forest, across the fragrant meadows, stopping in a deserted place. 
I relished memories of unrestrained pleasure, excitement, and sensual satisfaction. I was angry at God. I'd retrieve every tiny physical pleasure from my mind and throw it up to him in bitterness. I couldn't accept the fact, God's will, they said, that I'd never do or feel these things again. Breakthrough came when she learned to inhabit the gospel story. She didn't stoically accept her fate. She received the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul had prison chains. She had her chair. A pastor came alongside her and said, you know, Johnny, you are given in this battle the privilege of not merely believing in Christ, but also suffering for his sake. He, he recast Johnny's story by calling on her not only to believe the gospel, but also to become like the gospel. And this gave her a brand new perspective on her, her wheelchair. Now, instead of it being a terrible burden, she saw it as a tool for God's work in her life. The chair became a blessing and unbelievably, she said it became an instrument of joy. And she goes on to, to talk about how her suffering exposed her flesh in new ways. See, outside evil usually exposes our inside evil. And when Johnny saw her inside evil, she realized she needed to repent of demanding her old life back. But repentance means embracing the suffering. And so Johnny put to death her old life by giving away her cherished hockey and lacrosse sticks and selling her beloved horse. She stopped clinging to her past. Johnny at the time didn't realize the depth of the change that God had done in her heart. Until one evening when her friends took her to Baltimore. She writes, one night, a few young life friends who like to sing packed me up for a late night drive into Baltimore City. We ended up downtown at the railway station, a massive structure with travertine floors, marble columns, and vaulted ceilings. We found a corner and started harmonizing, our voices echoing throughout the station. A security guard approached and ordered us out of the building. See that no loitering sign? It's 11 p.m. and you kids don't belong here, he barked. Then he pointed at me and put that wheelchair back where you found it right now. But sir, I said, it's mine. He told me not to give him any lip and put it back right away. When our little group started laughing, he realized his error. That night when my friends got me home, one kneeled beside my chair and said, Johnny, that's the first time I've ever heard you call it my wheelchair. Thank you for doing that. You're helping me own my problems too. Johnny received the wheelchair. She received the descent into the J-curve. She didn't push it away. She embraced it. See, God has given each of us a wheelchair. It might be a critical spouse, a wayward child, an always tight budget, the prospect of lifelong singleness, these chairs are doors to knowing Jesus in ways we never imagined. But they have to be received. We can't push them away. We need to say with Johnny, it's my wheelchair. And Paul is saying, if you do that, you'll know Christ in ways you never thought possible. Last, look through a resurrection lens. 
Look through a resurrection lens. Philippians chapter one, Paul writes, I want to know brothers and sisters that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. You see the the uptick in the J-curve. The resurrection transforms how Paul processes life. His reaction to being imprisoned with a death sentence hanging over his head reveals a remarkable vision for life. Notice two things in these verses. First, Paul isn't focused on himself. He's in chains and there's probably much to complain about. There's probably a lot to complain about, but grumbling and complaining are not absent. In the, they're, they're absent in the picture. They're, they're nowhere to be found. See, suffering often forces us to look at the things that cause us to complain and to grumble, but a resurrection lens frees us from fixating on the things that cause us to complain and instead focuses our attention to look for a resurrection. Paul is in chains, but he's scanning the horizon for a resurrection because he knows one's coming. Because that's the shape of the Christian life. Second, because Paul is looking, scanning the horizon, scanning the horizon in the midst of his mini death, he's scanning the horizon for a resurrection. Because he's doing that, his eyes are up, he's able to spot it. And what was it in, his, in this story? The advance of the gospel. The entire imperial guard knows precisely why Paul is a prisoner. Because of his love for Jesus. Paul had this general view of imprisonment from the word go, by the way. His attitude was, well, they need the gospel in jail too. Can you imagine having that? Imagine being arrested for being a Christian. Because you dared to share the gospel with somebody on the streets of Cedarburg or Mequon or Grafton. And as you're being thrown into the squad car, you're thinking to yourself, well, I can see the resurrection in this already. I get to make Christ known to those in prison. See, having a resurrection lens helps you to spot it quickly. Do you have a resurrection lens? When you wake up in the morning, ask Where's the resurrection? When you wake up in the morning, okay, I'm going to scan the horizon. Where's the resurrection? I'm going to look for it. Where is it? This is how it works. I'm going to look for it. When you're going through that bit of bad news, say to yourself, a resurrection's coming. I just need to be looking for it. A resurrection lens will always help you look for resurrections in your circumstances. Nick Ripkin tells the story of Dimitri, a pastor imprisoned for his faith, who served 17 years in a, in a Soviet jail. Every morning, and Dimitri stood by his bed with arms outstretched and sang his favorite worship hymn as loudly as he could. You picture that? Year after year, day after day, by his bed, in jail. The other 1,500 hardened criminals mocked and jeered him. After 15 years of this, 
15 years of this. Thinking that all his family was dead, he first offered to sign and then refused to sign a confession. And in a final act of defiance, he posted a page of Bible verses on a pillar in the prison. As the angered prison officials led him away to what appeared to be his execution, all 1,500 prisoners stood and sang his favorite worship hymn. And the stunned guards asked him, who are you? And Dimitri answered, I am Jesus in your midst. They returned him to his cell. And soon afterward, he was released. What did Dimitri have? Dimitri had a resurrection lens. He had a resurrection lens that gave him a new way of seeing. A new way of seeing. Fixing him on the resurrection, scanning the horizon for the resurrection. See, a J-curve map allows us to see rising where we might get stuck in dying. A J-curve map helps us spot rising where we might get stuck in dying. Let's pray. And Lord, we thank you for this. We thank you for this map This is how the Christian life works itself out. This is the normal Christian life. It includes hundreds of many deaths and hundreds of many resurrections. I pray that you would imprint this on our minds and our hearts. As we go about this life, as we live and move and have our being, we would know exactly how to locate our experiences in relationship to what you've promised us in your word. Lord, I pray for those in the midst of a hard time right now where finding joy to celebrate Easter may be a challenge. I pray that you'd help them to see that they are inhabiting the gospel story. This isn't strange. They're inhabiting the gospel story. I pray, God, that you give them a sweet sense of your presence with them in it. And Lord, for all of us, regardless of the challenges or the difficulties facing us, I pray that that, um, we would be scanning the horizon to be able to spot, to see the resurrection. You've promised it to us. You're a good God, you're a powerful God, and you make that work. So we worship you for it and we look forward. We look forward with anticipation to the next mini resurrection you'll bless us with. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.